0: Um, so the, uh, the message today is going to be on the topic of the preservation of Scripture. I want us to look at something here today that um, is a very important topic and we'll see why, we'll see as we go through this. But um, the Bible that we have, the Bible that we use here, um, how do we know, for sure, that this is the actual word of God. How do we know that this has not changed from you know 4,000 years ago when uh, when 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 the book of Job you know was written? How do we know that Job's words you know are accurately preserved, recorded, translated for us? How do we know that? And I think it is very very important to know that. And we'll go through that in detail here. But I think without, if we don't have that, um, I guess to put it blunt, there's no reason for us to be here today if we do not have that. We must know for sure that we have the Word of God. So we're going to look, and this is a very broad topic. What I, My only goal today with this is just to look at it, in, um, primarily to look at what the Bible has to say about the preservation of Scripture and the implications of that. I'm not going to get um, too much into the historical aspect. I will mention that a little bit. I'll give some examples of, of how the Bible has been preserved. But we're going to look at, just from a biblical point of view, what the Bible has to say about God preserving his word for us and what that means and why that is such a big deal. And um, so uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to go through um, a dozen passages of Scripture or so about God's promises of preservation because uh, this doctrine of Bible preservation is based 100% on the promises of God, to so the fact that God promised that he would do it. So we're going to look at those. We're going to go through those, and, uh, and then we'll get into it. But let's actually go ahead and pray before we start. So um, I'll open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity here to learn about your word and to learn from your word. We can pray that, <clears throat> that you would teach us. Pray that you would guide us, open our minds and our hearts to your word. And pray this something we'd be able to apply to our lives and that you would change us here today. Pray if there's any not here that I do not know you as your savior, that uh, you would work in the service and that they would get that settled even today. And we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me get a drink of water here real quick. Okay, so first promise we're going to look at here Psalms 12, 6 through 7. This is really talking about the promise to the Word of God. Well, let's look at it here. So, Psalms 12, <clears throat> let me, uh, I'll start off reading verse 6 and 7. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, <clears throat> excuse me, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So, here's the first one we're going to look at. There are many, many, many promises preserved God's word in Scripture. We're just going to look at a few, like said, a dozen or so. But this one here has come under recent attack. Um, I even I was reading an article just recently from, sad to say, a peer of mine who decided to write a whole thing on how this passage here. Is not talking about the preservation of Scripture, but I hope to prove you today that it very clearly is. It's quite simple. Um, so, uh, the, the verse, the them in verse seven, "Thou shalt keep them, O Lord." That is referring back to um, the words of the Lord are pure words, They're referring back to the words of the Lord. Now, the argument goes that um, this is actually talking about the, the, the believers, that God is talking about preserving the believers. Uh, you know, It starts off in verse 1. Help, O Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity everyone with his neighbors, the flattering lips, the double tongue. It goes on to talk about the, the oppression of the poor. In verse 5, the, the sighing of the needy. Now while I rise, saith the Lord, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Then it changes, to the words of the Lord appear words in verse 7, thou shalt keep them. So, simple English grammar here. We have a pronoun here of them. What is the antecedent of this pronoun? This is a plural pronoun. It is improper grammar to use a plural pronoun back to a, a, a singular antecedent. And the only singular antecedent referring to the believers that you could find here would have to go all the way back to verse 1, the godly man. I don't think you can pull that pronoun all the way back to the godly man in verse 1. <laughs> so the obvious antecedent of this pronoun is the words of the Lord in verse 6. Just point. That might seem obvious to everyone here. I just want to mention that because that is actually argued. But um, So the words of the Lord are pure words. So we have the fir- uh, one of the first promises in Scripture here, that God is going to preserve his word. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God is going to keep his words Forever from this generation, the generation which it was written in, forever, forever. We are still included in that forever today. That is not yet ended. So God's word is promised to be preserved here. Look at Psalm 78. And uh, let's go over Psalm 78. Uh, I'm just going to read the first few verses of this quickly, and we'll mention something about them. This is more of an indirect promise here. Psalm 78. Verse 1 says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. Our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he hath established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. So, just indicating here that God intended His word to be available to succeeding generations. How would these fathers be able to teach the next generation, the generation after that, the generation after that, the promises and the commandments of God if it was not going to be kept for them? So, it's making a logical argument here. If God is telling us to teach our children and have them teach their children, have them teach their children the words and the commandments of God, God is going to make that available for us to do that. So just kind of an indirect promise here. Look at Psalm 105. Let's go to Psalm 105. Look at the next one here. Psalm 105 in verse 8. It says, He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Typically there's two different definitions of a generation. It's either 20 years or 30 years. So, see, at least twenty or 30,000 years is what God is promising here. And the, many other scriptures say forever. But just pointing out, here's another promise here, that he would keep his word uh, for, for a very long time. Uh, let's look at Psalm 119. Look at a few verses in Psalm 119. An amazing chapters, all about the word of God. Um, look at Psalm 119, verse 89. One nineteen verse eighty nine says, "Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness under all generations. I was established the earth and it abides." So verse, verse there, verse eighty nine, "Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, the word of God is settled. The um, the the word settled. The first definition of the word settle in the Webster's H twenty eight dictionary is to place in a permanent." condition. God has placed his word in a permanent condition. And that is something that is preserved. It says, forever settled in heaven. This is not something that anyone on earth can change. No man or any person on earth is able to alter the fact that God's word is going to be in a permanent condition and permanently available to all generations. This is something that's forever settled in heaven. Look at verse 111. 111. Psalm 119, verse 111. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. If we are to cling to God's testimonies as our inheritance, as our treasures forever, for forever, and make them the rejoicing of our, then they must be preserved uh, forever. Just another uh, reference here to that. Uh, you know, if God intends us to make the Word of God our inheritance, which the um, the, the reference there, you know, our inheritance is, is a treasure. It's a treasure. speaking of someone who, who received an inheritance from their father. Um, it's something that they would treasure. Is, God wants us to treasure the word of God forever. So he's going to give it to us so that we can treasure it. We've got to know that we have the word of God. I look at Psalm 119, verse 152. 152 says, concerning thy testimonies. I have known of old that Thou has founded them forever. Another promise here. Like I said, we're going through, we're reading the direct promises of God that His Word is going to be available to us today. So that's that's our goal here. That's what we're starting here with. So clear promise in verse one fifty-two. God is God has promised that God has founded them forever. Look at verse one sixty, Psalm one nineteen one sixty. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Another, just clear, direct uh, promise from God, that his word is true from the beginning, and every one of his righteous judgments will endure forever. We have this very clear promise. Let's look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22, just moving along through here. So we are going to be, like I said, flipping through a few scripture. Passages here today, I want us to see that, I want us to see God's promises here firsthand. Then we'll make some, we'll look at some implications of these. Proverbs 22, look at verse 20 and 21. Verse 22, verse 20 and 21. Have I not written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? Uh, so God gives us His word so that we can know the certainty of the words of truth. According to here, why would He not preserve them? Why, if this is God's, if God wants us to have His word, if He has written us excellent things and counsels and knowledge that we may know the certainty of the words of truth, why would He not preserve that? You know, if He gave, you know, Solomon is writing this here, and He's God's telling Solomon, I'm giving you these words that you may know truth, that you can have certainty that you have truth. And why why would he make us that promise, and then allow his word to be corrupted, and then take it away? Like, oh, you know, I really want you to have truth, but I just couldn't quite preserve it for you. Sorry, it went bad a couple hundred years ago, so you, you don't have it anymore. No, it doesn't make sense that God would give us these promises and then not preserve His word. Um, let's go to Ecclesiastes three fourteen, Book of Ecclesiastes chapter three verse fourteen. So um, the context of Ecclesiastes chapter three is talking about uh, the many necessary changes that must come to men's lives. But look at verse fourteen: "I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever; nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before Him." Uh, I think we can apply this to the Word of God. Can we not apply this to God's Word? That whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. This is in contrast to the preceding verses where God is talking about this, the changes that are going to come to man. There's a time to born, there's a time to die, there's a time to kill, there's a uh, time to heal. And then it, it, it kind of makes a sharp contrast, but in verse 14, but whatsoever God doeth, that shall be forever. Man cannot, man cannot do anything that's going to last forever, but God can. And I'll apply this to the word of God um, here, kind of an, an indirect uh, reference of promise here. Let's go to the New Testament now. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verse 4. Christ here is actually quoting an Old Testament passage. Get this here a little bit. Matthew 4, verse 4. So Jesus is being, he was led of the Spirit, the wilderness, to be tempted. This is his temptation in the wilderness. And uh, the tempter, Satan, is tempting him. In verse 4 he says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Um Every word. If if God wants us to live by every word, then every word must be preserved. We're going to look at a few promises here that specify details, not just a general statement of, you know, the Word of God are going to last is going to last forever. But every word, the very words of God, and, and we'll look at some very detailed promises here. But here's here's one of them: every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So if if the Lord Jesus Christ himself would say that he wants us to live by every word of, of, of God. I believe he's going to give us every word of God that, that he wants us to have. Uh, the word written here, verse 4, he says, it is written. Jesus Christ is quoting a, a passage from Deuteronomy. Jesus Christ is quoting the Old Testament. It is written. That is a very interesting word. and um, Just a, a tidbit here about the Greek word behind this. I am in no way a Greek scholar, very much relying upon the, 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 the te- what I've read from other men in this passage. But, but you know, I have uh, taken a little bit of But So this, the Greek word behind this is the word uh, gegrapti, if I say that right. There's four different past tenses in the Greek. The Greek language is an amazing language. They have four different past tenses. This particular tense in which this word is written in is, is the perfect past tense. It indicates an action that has begun in the past, and the results of that act continue right down to the very present. Basically, what this means, what Jesus Christ is saying, that the verse that He is quoting in in the Old Testament Deuteronomy stands today just as it was, as written down. Jesus Christ could have used a different word; He could use a different tense that would indicate, you know, kind of a point past tense that it was wrote, it was wrote at one point. But no, this tense, this word indicates. It is written, that is a perfect past tense. It stands just as it was written down today. He's indicating that this is preserved for us today, just by the use of the word there. Jesus Christ is confirming here the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is, is preserved. Let's go to Matthew 5, Matthew five seventeen through 18. This is a very interesting one. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17 and 18. <clears throat> it says, "Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled." Okay, so Christ gives us a very specific promise here. Not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. To all be fulfilled. He's promised the preservation of the jot and tittle. What is a jot and a tittle? What is that referring to? You may be able to see this in your Bible, depending on what Bible you have, but turning your Bibles back to Psalm 119. Some Bibles, mine does here, I looked up, I have a couple different Bibles um, from different publishers. Some didn't, some did. This one, mine happens to have. If you look at Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is broken up into 22 different sections, each one corresponding to a Hebrew letter, in the letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And their names of those Hebrew letters are given at the top of each section in most Bibles. Some Bibles will not only give the English spelling of the name, like Aleph, they will actually give the Hebrew letter. I have those in mind. Does anybody else, you see, you look at Psalm 119, and you are seeing Hebrew letters. A few people, see, a few people got it, Okay. So if you have that, if you don't have that, I'm sorry, try to find a neighbor or afterwards I'll show you. (laughs) But um, if you do have that, let me show you what a jot and a tittle is. Uh, So first of all, the jot, that is actually the Hebrew letter Yod. So if you find kind of towards the middle of Psalm 119, starting in verse 73, there is the title of that section is Yod. And if you have a Hebrew letter there, you will see there is a very tiny speck of a letter. Yod is the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in fact, even the word that Christ said in Greek for this word Yod was actually the word iota, which is the tenth letter of the Greek alphabet, which is also, you know, we, iota, we use that word still today to indicate something little tiny, something really small. So yod is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It usually refers to, or uh, kind of correlates to the letter J or the letter I in our English language. So that's jot, that's a yod, and it's a very tiny little, looks like a tiny little backwards R almost. Um, uh, so and then a tittle. What is a tittle? So uh, we can see this illustrated by comparing a couple of, of a couple of letters here. Tittle is a very small part, very small part of a letter. Um, so look, uh, let's, there's a couple different examples, but let's, the, the letter cough and the letter bait. So bait is in the second section, verse nine. See that? If you have that there, you can see how that letter looks like, bait. And then cough starts in verse 81. And you notice these two letters, if you have that, if you have that, they're very, very similar. They kind of look like a backwards C-ish. But if you, if you get out your magnifying glass, which you almost need for my Bible here, you notice at the bottom right-hand corner of the word bait, there's a little tiny part that juts out like a millimeter uh, at the bottom. Anybody see that word bait? And you look at the word cough. The word cough doesn't have that. That little tiny part that juts out at the, uh, the bottom of the letter bait, that's a tittle, that little tiny millimeter. That's what a tittle is. And that's the actual name for it. Yeah, we also see this demonstration. Look at the word, uh, the letter dolleth. Which is, starts in verse 25, and then you can also compare that one with resh, which starts in verse 153. Same thing. Resh kind of looks like a backwards R ish, or like a T with just a just a uh, the line on the left side, not the right side. Compare resh with the letter the letter the top right hand corner, there's a little tiny piece of the letter that juts out. That is a tittle. That's what the tittle refers to. It's the tiniest possible part of a Hebrew letter. So what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here is that every tittle, every little part of every Hebrew letter was going to be preserved. That's his promise. And, and every jot and every tittle, every letter, even down to every part of a letter. That is the promise given in Matthew five 17. Uh, let's go to uh, Matthew 24. Matthew twenty-four, verse thirty-five. Matthew twenty-four, the reading verse thirty-five, excuse me. Okay, it says, uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Again, a very clear, bold statement, of his words. Now, this one here, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking specifically about his words. Uh, The passage of Matthew 4, 4 uh, is something that kind of affirms the Old Testament. Jesus Christ himself saying the Old Testament is preserved. Matthew twenty four thirty five. we could apply this to the New Testament, and we could apply all these promises to the whole Bible, and there's so many we can look at, but looking at this here, Jesus Christ saying His words, and we could we could get into it. man, if you want to get into John fourteen fifteen and 16, where Jesus Christ is saying that He is the truth, He's the way, the truth, and life, and it talks about how the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance all of His words, He's the Spirit of truth, He's going to guide them into all truth, and uh, we might look at that if we have time here today, but... You can see Jesus Christ directly claims to be the author of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, and Jesus, and I believe that 100% Jesus Christ is the work. He is the direct author of the entirety of Scripture. And he is promising that his words will not pass away. He says, heaven and earth shall pass away. Christ's words are more secure than heaven and earth. I don't know about you, but I kind of take the security of earth for granted sometimes. Now, I know... Um, you know, bio, the, bio, the Bible prophecy of the future of what's going to happen to the earth, you know, um, quite a ways down the road. I know it's not forever. It's going to end one day. But on a daily basis, very rarely, if ever, I don't think I ever have, have I gone to bed at night wondering if the earth is going to be here next morning. Like, I hope the earth is still here when I wake up tomorrow morning. We don't think that. We, we just take it for granted. The earth is sure, it's secure, it's terra firma, you know. We build on it, we walk on it, we live on it. You know, Sometimes we have earthquakes and it moves around a little bit and things fall down. But as as general, we, we have no problem trusting in fact that the earth is solid and that it's here. It's going to be here. Your trust in the word of God should be greater than that, your trust in the earth. In the surety, the preservation, the fact that you have the very words of God. You should have more trust and confidence in that than in confidence in the fact that the earth is going to be here tomorrow morning. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. His words are more sure than even the existence of heaven and earth. Let's go to John ten thirty five. This one here, we'll, we'll just mention it. We could uh, let me read it here. John ten thirty five. <coughs> Um, just kind of jumping in the middle of context here. Which is, if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, say, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified sin in the world, that blasphemes because he said, I am the Son of God. So we're, we're jumping into a conversation here that Jesus is having in, with Jews, and we're going to look at one statement. You know, he says the Scripture cannot be broken. We're going to look at that. I do want to mention. You know, what is this talk? Verse thirty. Uh, verse thirty four, Jesus answered in them, it is not written is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If you called them gods in whom the word of God came, then the scripture cannot be broken. Who is he talking? Is he calling people gods? It's 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 a word Reference is common, is sometimes it's used for a word God, sometimes God, sometimes judges, sometimes rulers. You see this, you can look at it in Exodus 7 1, Exodus 22, verse 28. The same word is used just referred refer to rulers of people. So, and God did, is, this is a direct quotation of Scripture, um, uh, Psalms 82.6, where God is refer- calls the rulers of the earth gods, and almost in a mocking sense. But, um, anyways, the point of looking at the Scriptures of this verse is that Christ says, the Scripture Cannot be broken again. Referencing an Old Testament passage, quoting directly Jesus Christ. It, it, one thing we can we can we can imply from this too: the fact that Jesus Christ quoted Old Testament scripture. Okay, so Jesus Christ, he's quoting Psalms here, and previously he quoted Moses and Deuteronomy, and Jesus quoted many different Old Testament authors. These were not recent authors; these were written hundreds of years before Christ. Some thousands of years before Christ. Jesus Christ did not have the original Hebrew autographs that Moses wrote. He did not have that. But he said that the Old Testament passages that he had, that he was reading, were the words of God. That is Jesus Christ saying that those words were preserved. They had been preserved For thousands of years, since the originals had long been lost, but the words that he had been so at Christ's time. Christ believed in the preservation of Scripture, the preservation of the Old Testament Scripture. So that's just an implication here. But he says that the Scripture cannot be broken. Very interesting word here. Uh, The root word from this is the same word that we get our English word analysis from. And um, so basically what he's saying is that God's word cannot be separated into different parts. It cannot be loosened, broken up, or dissolved, is what it's saying. It basically, you know, it's 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 whole, it's solidified, it's permanent, it, nothing's going to break it up at all. It cannot be broken. Just an interesting word there. Uh, just a couple more here. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Just a reference here. Real quick. Colossians 1, verse 17. Let me... Uh, Make an implication here from this passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, Colossians one. Um I'll start in verse 16 so we can know this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, "...for by him were all things created that are in heaven and and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist." So um, just that word consists, by Christ, all things consist. By Christ, one of the definitions of that word consists is preserve. And this is not a direct reference to the preservation of scriptures, but as to all things. Christ is literally holding together every atom in the universe, every part of your body. is literally being held together by Christ. By him, all things consist. Um, so just a, a point make here. So if we, can, if we can say that, if we can believe that Christ can hold together every atom of the universe just by his sheer power, can he not preserve his word? Can he not hold together the words of the Bible to be preserved for, for all generations? So just a reference here to that. And uh, last verse here we're going to look at in regards to promises of preservation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at 23 through 25. First Peter chapter one. Okay, uh, First Peter one, sorry, verse twenty three, is being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The glass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This is a clear promise of God's preservation of Scripture. It is incorruptible. It, and he, of course, he makes a comparison, you know, the flesh as grass, or the flower grass, you know, flowers are pretty corruptible. We don't have any outside right now. There's snow. They all get destroyed by snow. But in, in contrast to the, to the, um, uh, very, the flowers being very susceptible to corruption, is the word of God stands as incorruptible, living and abiding forever. Just another very clear reference here to the word of God. So let me briefly mention here, after looking through these promises we are got, before we get into the implications of this, let me just give one example. This is not the, the purpose of this message, is necessarily to give the, um, the historical examples, but I do want to mention at least one example of the method of preservation. How was the Word of God preservation so just briefly okay specifically about the old Testament the the how God used the Jews to um, to preserve the Old Testament scripture um, and this is just absolutely fascinating, um, but I'm just going to give you eight, eight laws, and these laws are written down in the Talmud, and these are laws that Jewish scribes had, Paul well, it's actually pretty interesting, apparently visiting right now, this morning I got a video from my dad of a Jewish scribe copying down an Old Testament scroll, it was amazing to watch, it was fascinating, but anyways, um, so here's, here's some rules that a Jewish scribe assigned with the task of copying An Old Testament, a book of the Old Testament, or any part of the Old Testament had to follow. Okay, one, the parchment must be made from the skin of clean animals. It must be prepared by a Jew only, and the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. Rule number two, each column must have no less than 48 or no more than 60 lines, and the entire copy must be first lined. Uh, rule number three, the ink must be of no other color than black, and it must be prepared according to a special recipe. Rule number four, no word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe must have an authentic copy before him, and he must read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. For instance, if you take Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the, the scribe would have to pronounce audibly every word before he wrote it. Uh, so if he was to write the verse, the Genesis 1-1, he would first have say Breshith, which is in the beginning. Then he would to say Elohim, God. he would to say "Bara, created. Then Eshashashmim, which, uh, which is the heavens. And Wa Eshaharetz, and the earth. He would have to audibly pronounce each Hebrew word before he wrote it down. He had to pronounce every word before he wrote it down with an authentic copy before him. And he could not just see it in his mind, had to pronounce it. This was to avoid any errors, duplications, or omissions. Rule number five, he must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God, which is Elohim, uh, very common, uh, most commonly in the Old Testament for that word. And he must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah, which is translated as Lord in all caps in our King James Bible. Lest the holy name be contaminated. Well, number six, strict rules were given concerning the form of letters, spaces between the letters, words, sections, the use of the pen, the color of the apartment, etc. There's a whole host of strict rules concerning those things. Verse seven, the revision of a rule must be made within 30 days after the work was finished. Otherwise, it was worthless. One mistake on a sheet condemned the sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. And so think about it. What if a man got all the way from Genesis to Malachi... And three mistakes were 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 discovered. The the parchment was burned. It was condemned. It was gone. And you would have to restart. And this took I mean, we're talking months, years sometimes to make a copy of the Old Testament. So they were very meticulous. I mean we see that the meticulousness which with the Jews were ordered to guard the Word of God and this is something they took seriously. They guarded this. These men believed that the words they were copying were God's holy words very much unlike the translators, the modern-day translators of our modern versions, which have outright said multiple times, they do not even believe the words they are translating are the words of God. This this is in stark contrast to that. They held the word of God in utmost respect. Uh, Rule number eight, every word and every letter was counted. They would count the words. And if if the count was off, the the manuscript was condemned. Um, That would be a lot of counting. This is very, very exact. So just an example here of, of the Old Testament. And we can get into the New Testament in many different ways if I just want to, there's an example of the method that was preserved. So, quickly now wrapping up here, in the next few minutes, uh, what are the implications of this? Implications of the preserved Word of God, if we have the preserved Word of God today. So, one, if the Bible is preserved, we can trust in it. We can trust in it. Uh, let me read Psalm 119, I'm I'll just read a couple of verses real quick. Uh, Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The only reason why we can use this as a lamp, as a light, as a guide to make decisions. You know, when we go throughout life and we're faced with a decision and we don't know what to do, we as Christians who have the Word of God, we can go to the Bible and have a sure rock to stand upon that we have the Word of God, that we know what decision to make, the rights to make based on the principles found in God's Word. If this is not preserved, if it is corrupted, we don't have that. We don't have it. It's not a lamp. It is not a light. Um, Look at Psalm 19. Uh, let me just—I'm just, just going to read the verse. Psalm 19, 7 to 10. I believe we sang this in Sunday school this morning. This passage, but just wonderful passage of scripture that we can apply if the Word of God is preserved. Psalm 19. Um, 7 through 10, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, that much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. This is a promise that we could apply to our life if God's word is preserved. If the Bible is preserved, we should... Um, we should obey it. We could trust him. We should obey it. What I want to mention too is, obviously as I've mentioned, you know, if the Bible is not preserved, then we cannot trust in it. We cannot trust in it. You can't trust one word of it. So, I mean, think about the logic here. If there is a chance that the Bible has been corrupted, there is a chance that this book has been corrupted, how do you know what's been corrupted and what hasn't been corrupted? How do you know? How do you find that out? With this thing, You can't. You can trust none of it, not one word. Because you don't know if the verse that you're believing in, what, what if that one's been corrupted? What if that wasn't the original word? You cannot trust it. Why, why would we have anything to do with the word of God if God has not preserved it for us today? There would be no reason for that to be corrupted. We could not even trust the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could not trust the gospel. We could not trust the Bible. You know, In the book of Psalms, the verses we read where um, you know, God's word, it's, it's, it's like honey, you know, sweet fresh honey preserved to our taste. It's only it's preserved, you know. If if God's word is not preserved, it's not sweeter it's not as sweet as honey to my mouth. It's spoiled. It's rotten. You know, we cannot we cannot trust in it. We cannot use it. We cannot apply it to our lives. So if the Bible's is preserved, we can trust it. If it's not preserved, we cannot trust in it. As Bible's preserved, we should obey it. Let me read you Second Peter chapter one. Really quick. This is Amazing promise here, too. That clock goes a lot faster when you're standing up here than when you're down there, I promise. <laughs> Almost done here, trying to wrap it up. Okay. 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 Um, second Peter, if I can find my passage, it would go a lot quicker. Okay, let me read Second Peter 1. Uh, Second, verse 16. So, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his Majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from him, from the excellent glory, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And this voice came from heaven, and we heard, and we were with him in the holy mount. We, also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Um, what he is implying here, he's comparing, he talks about the eyewitness accounts the had of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 19, it says, but we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He's saying the word of God that we have is more sure than their eyewitness accounts that they had when the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. God's word is more sure than that. Uh, and, and we would do well to take heed to obey it. We would do well, if this word is true, if it is preserved, if this word of God is true, we would do well to take heed what it says. Also, just talk about inspiration. God promised to preserve His words, not man's words. Preservation is a proof of inspiration of Scripture. It's a proof that God inspired it. These words came from God, not from man. God never promised anywhere to preserve man's words. He promised to preserve His words. This is the inspired Word of God. But we would do well to take heed. And one of those. So let me let me let me try to logically draw something out lastly here. The last couple minutes I have here. So if we would do well to take heed to the, gospel, to the word of God, the gospel is an essential part of that. So let me, let's go to John chapter 14. Look at John chapter 14, verse 6. So Bible, the Bible titles the Lord Jesus Christ as the word, titles him as the truth. Um, John 14, verse 6, Jesus Christ is the only truth. Jesus, uh, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If the Bible is the preserved word of God, we should, we, should obey the, we should obey the gospel. The gospel is presented in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the only truth. This is the first part of it. God, Jesus Christ is truth. He is the word of God. So man has been made to seek truth. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he talks about the world set in their heart. Look at Acts chapter 17. The Bible says that God, that God created man to seek after God. To, to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ. To seek after truth. You were created, each and every one of us were created, to seek after truth. To seek after God. According to the Bible, if this word is preserved, if the Lord Jesus Christ is truth, Jesus Christ is truth. is truth. This is truth. This is the truth that you were meant to seek. That you were meant to seek after. You were meant to seek after God. According to Acts 17, 26 and verse 27. But man does not seek after God. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. This is, this is is This is the biggest reason why to put our trust in the Word of God and the preservation of Scripture. Romans chapter 1. So we're made to seek after God, but we do not seek after God. Let me read you quickly some verses in the book of Romans. Um, Romans 1, let me start verse 28. Is it, uh, even as, even as they did not like him to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. This is describing men who do not seek after God. Now, who is that talking about? Well, unfortunately, it's talking about us, all of us, everyone. And let's look at. Let me prove that to you. Uh, so, why why is this description of man's sin so bad here? Why do we have this terrible? Way? It's because it has to do with God's law or breakers of God's law. Look at Romans chapter two. Uh, Verse 12 through 15. The next chapter of Romans 2, verse 12 through 15. It says, For as many have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. According to the book of Romans here, this uh, God's law is written on our hearts. The word of God, the Ten Commandments, God's law, are written on our hearts. That's our conscience. That's what it is. Let me prove it to you. Um, Let's go through them. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. Let me know how you feel. Because I know when I go through them, I feel uh, my conscience tells me, oh, that's written on your heart, and you did that. <laughs> um, you know, we, and this is exactly what Jesus Christ did when he was on the earth, and he was trying to tell others, that, hey, you need to see Christ. And what he did? He was their conscience. He was the law written on their hearts and said, let me prove to you that what I'm saying is truth, and he used the law of God to do that. And, you know, you go through the law of God, you can do that. The Bible says, we can, just, we can just pick out a few of them. Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. I've never killed. Good with that one. But Matthew, Bible makes it clear that God judges by the heart. Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says that Jesus Christ said whosoever you know, would be angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Thou shalt not kill. God judges the heart. This is applied to uh, many of the commandments. Two of them primarily. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That God is going to judge you at the heart level. So if your heart is angry with someone without a cause, you are guilty of the commandment thou shalt not kill. If your heart has lusted after someone who is not your wife or your husband, then you are guilty of the commandment thou shalt not commit adultery. You are guilty. That is how Jesus Christ will judge you. The um, Bible says thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. When's the last time you have desired something that you really shouldn't be desiring, something that's not yours, and you're willing to even to go to an extent and maybe even cause harm to someone to get it or to take it away from someone, thou shalt not covet. That is a commandment of God. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. We've lied, you know, guilty. Going, this is, this is, these are commandments that we have broken. Uh, you know, thou shalt not steal. God. Every time you've stolen any little thing, whether it's big or small, we are guilty of this. You know, we go through. You know, honor thy father and thy mother. I, you know, I, I can remember more times than I care to where I have failed in that commandment to honor thy father and thy mother. Think about this. You go through this, and it doesn't give you all this nice, wonderful rainbow butterfly feeling. Oh, happy! Doesn't. Why not? All God is written on your heart is telling you what you're hearing is truth. This is the Holy Spirit that does that. So this is the reason why the description of our sin is so bad. It's the law of God, and we have broken the law of God. Let me read you Romans three. We're still in Romans. Romans three, ten, twelve. So remember Acts seventeen, man was made to seek after God. Well look at Romans three, verse ten, a couple of verses here. As is written, There is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Right there, boom, none that seeketh after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. What are the implications of this? Okay, so we're made to seek after God, but we don't seek after God. We sin, we break His law, we disobey Him. So what? What's the big deal? Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is upon you. This is why it's a big deal. This is, why we, uh, this is why we're talking about this here. This is a big deal. The wrath of God is part of you. this wrath of God is described for us, if we look in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, where it talks about Judgment Day, all those who have died in their sins apart from Christ, and they're being judged by God. The penalty for their sins is the lake of fire, being separated from God forever and ever in a terrible place called the lake of fire forever. That is the wrath of God that will be poured out on sin. So we have a problem if this is true. If the Bible is saying this, and this is the true word of God that's preserved, we have a problem. I'm a sinner. I have broken God's law. The wrath of God is upon me. But there is a solution. John three sixteen It says, I should be able to quote that one. <coughs> says, for God so loved the world. For, well, I should be able to quote, of course. For, God's, for God, wow. Somebody quote it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes. For God's love of the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, Whoever was in Him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. God gave His Son. Why did God give His Son? Why did He come? This has to do with this whole thing of us being under the wrath of God. This is the reason for God giving His Son, God Himself becoming it. And why did He... The book of Hebrews. I promise we won't be long in the book of Hebrews. I'm almost done. Hebrews chapter 1. I want to show you two things about Christ from the book of Hebrews. That he came to live a righteous life, and he came to die a substitutionary death. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 6. So says, then again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And unto the angels he saith, Who maketh his angel spirits as ministers of flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. So to point out one here, the Son that came, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God. He is the Almighty Creator. He is God. And he is he, the one who loves righteousness. And hates the iniquities, came to a righteous life. Also, uh, Hebrews four fifteen says that for we have not a high priest referring to Jesus Christ, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted, uh, tempted, like as we yet without sin. Jesus Christ came, lived as a man, and all points tempted as a man, yet without sin. Jesus Christ came to live, a, to live a righteous life without sin. He also came to die a substitutionary death. Hebrews two verse nine says, but we see Jesus. Who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. This is the reason, this is the second reason for Christ coming to the earth, to taste death for every man, to die a substitutionary death. Hebrews 1-3. Think about this. Hebrews 1-3. Who being the brightness of his glory, talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the brightness of his glory of his glory, and the expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the man of This is, this, so, I mean, we spent spend a lot of time he's chapter one, we won't. But this is, this, is, this is who died for us, who came to die for us, is the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of the very person of God, the brightness of the glory of God. He is the one who came down to live a righteous life and to die a death for us, to die our death. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 25. We looked at Romans 1.18, which says, We are under the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness, because of our sin. And we're looking at Christ. Well, God gave his son. John 3.16, God gave his son. Look at Hebrews. His son came, lived a righteous life, died a substitutionary death. Why did he do this? Uh, Romans 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That word propitiation means to appease wrath. That is exactly the definition of that word. It's to appease wrath. To be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The solution to getting out from under the wrath of God is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot pay for our sins. We, are all, we read in Romans chapter 3, there is an unrighteous, no, not one. Romans, 5, uh, uh, Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That is our, and that death, Revelation 20, is separation from God forever. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die that death for you. That is why He came. And what do we do about that? Salvation is by faith in Christ. We read that in verse 25. To be a propitiation through faith. In his blood. Romans 3, 21 and 22. says now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And so um, the, the reason we're looking at this, I'm here to tell you this morning, like the only way to get out from under the wrath of God, to have righteousness applied to your life, is through the death of Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. You will not do it on your own. You do not have enough righteousness to do it. You, do not, you, cannot, uh, you cannot appease God through religion. You cannot appease God through any other way. The only person who appeased God's wrath was the Lord Jesus Christ because he was perfectly righteous. And God placed our sin upon him, and he paid the penalty for that sin. And how do we apply that to our lives? How do we get salvation from the wrath of God? It is by placing our faith wholly in Jesus Christ, repenting of whatever else you have your faith in, Repent of whatever you're believing. If you're believing on anything except for Jesus Christ for salvation, you're wrong. You need to repent of that. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you. And not only will you get saved from the wrath of God, but he'll give you life eternal. Then that Acts 17, where it says your very purpose in life was to seek God, you will now be able to accomplish your very purpose in life. You'll be able to accomplish the very reason why you were created. You will be able to experience a fulfilled life unlike anything you have ever known because you're seeking truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot do that. Unless unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ first and have His righteousness applied to your life, so I'm done. I just wanted to I wanted to uh, give us an idea of the promises of God here this morning for the preservation of Scripture. God has preserved His Word, and the next logical step to this is okay. We talked about the preservation of the Greek and Hebrew. What about English? How do I know that the King James Version is 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 English? and that's 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 a whole nother lesson. You know that, but I will—I 100% believe that our King James Bible accurately preserves the divinely inspired Hebrew and Greek words that, that you know and accurately translates them into English. And I do have four reasons for this: because of the text behind it, because of the translators did it, because of the techniques that they used, and because of the uh, the the, the, the um, appropriate theology seen in the Word of God. So this—that's a whole nother lesson. But you can be assured that. If God has promised to preserve his word for us today, then one of these millions of English translations has to be at least one of them. And if you do a good, thorough study, you'll find that there is only one, and it's a very, very obvious answer. It is the Key James Version. But with that, uh, let's go ahead and bow our heads close our eyes, and we'll go into a time.